Righty-ho, so one of the dangers for us as Christians is we lose our sense of amazement and wonder um, at how great God's salvation is. And it was great to be reminded this morning from Simon just how wonderful God is uh, in the way he saves us. This passage we're looking at that we just read, um, Annie, great job on reading that. Um, Wow, and thank you for the singing this morning. That descant in that first one, oh, yes, and oh, great singing. Um, Lovely, lovely, lovely. Um, And what can we do but sing uh, to our great God because of his salvation? And this passage this morning has been put to many songs. Uh, We're really looking at 43 and 44, but I'm really just going to focus on seven verses in chapter 43, which spells out the wonder um, of our great salvation. And if you wanted to find a passage which really in a nutshell said what Isaiah is kind of saying overall, this passage would fit that bill. It goes to the very heart of the uh, prophet's message. It's a word of salvation. an oracle of salvation, to use the technical term. It's a word uh, to Israel in exile in Babylon, hundreds of years before Christ, that assures them that God will act decisively to intervene and bring them home to Palestine. This passage is extremely joyful and exuberant, and there's a note of praise that rings out through the whole thing. It's a joyful word about an extraordinary deliverance that God is going to do. And as we'll see in a moment, the language that's used in this passage makes it clear that what God is about to do is nothing short of a new exodus, (laughs) a new exodus on a glorious scale. And the language used here in Isaiah 43 is incredible. It describes a powerful redemption, a huge deliverance. And when you look at the situation historically and what actually happened, That is, when the exiles came back from Babylon to the land of Palestine. Um, And we read about that in Ezra that we've been looking at in our DNA group with the guys, which has been great. Or Nehemiah tells that story as well and some of the later prophets. When you look at those Ezra, Nehemiah, later prophets, you realise that the scale of what happened when Israel came back from Babylon was nowhere near as extravagant as this prophecy here and that what actually happened wasn't on the grand scale that was promised here and that leads us to think that this prophecy that was spoken to that generation was a word of encouragement uh, for Israel living yes in captivity in Babylon assuring them that God would indeed act to save them nonetheless it's a prophecy that is far more reaching than that Um, that isn't entirely fulfilled in that generation. The language of Isaiah 43, 1-7 is about what God will ultimately do through Jesus Christ. And we learn that in the New Testament. Not that we simply interpret the Old Testament against the New Testament quickly, but we need to see it first in its context. But then we do need to look at how Jesus is the fulfilment ultimately of a prophecy that was partially fulfilled in Israel's history, but fully and finally fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, let's look at the passage. Just those first couple of verses, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. 
Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. Anyone know a song based on that? We used to sing one with lots of clapping and lots of no ways in, in, in the song. Loved it. <coughs> um, fear not. Da, 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 da. Um, <coughs> let's look at, I've got four questions up here that we're going to look at. Firstly, how is God described? He's referred to here as the Lord, which is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, translated in our English translations as the Lord. It's the name that means I am who I am, uh, that God gave his personal name when he made a covenant with Israel. And we, we, we translate that the Lord. And he's described as their God, the Holy One of Israel and their Saviour. To understand the full significance of these titles, we need to see the context in the previous chapter. In chapter 42, 18 to 25, there's a description of Israel in captivity. Israel is described as deaf and blind, not paying attention to the things that God has said, a people plundered and looted, trapped in pits and hidden away in prisons. It's a really, really grim picture of the people of Israel in Babylon. And then when we turn to Isaiah 43, verse 1, the opening words have so much weight, but now. (laughs) These words are in stark contrast to what has gone before. So chapter 43, verse 1, is like a shaft of light breaking in on the immense darkness of the people's spiritual blindness and their captivity. So how is God described? He is the Lord, the covenant God, the Holy One of Israel, their Saviour. And later in verse 11, God says, I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Saviour. And chapter 42 is... 44, sorry, is this huge slam of idols again. You're bowing down to a lump of wood that cannot save you. There is only one saviour. He is the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. That's chapter 44. But here in verse 1, God is described as their redeemer. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. And then verse 3, it goes on to speak about a redemption, a ransom that is to be given. God is Israel's redeemer. And that title, Redeemer, and the title, Saviour, and the title, The Lord, and the title, The Holy One of Israel, these are titles that were used back in Israel's history when God brought Israel out of Egypt in the first Exodus. Um, And so these words pick up that whole event of the Exodus out of Egypt. And therefore, the God who is about to act decisively again on behalf of his people is a God who can be relied upon because he's already done it before. He's already acted in a powerful way and therefore Israel can trust him. He's already proven himself to be faithful to his people Israel in the past. And the very terms that are used to describe God here remind Israel of that fact. Secondly, what has (coughs) he done already for his people? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. The word redeem here is ga'al or goel in the um, noun form means to buy back through the payment of a price. But in the Old Testament, it's a word used to describe what a kinsman, a relative would do. 
Do you remember the story of Ruth? How Boaz acts as a kinsman redeemer, not only to marry Ruth, but to take responsibility for caring for Ruth and her mother, Naomi. Now, a kinsman redeemer did several things. If a relative was sold into slavery and needed to be gotten out of slavery, the kinsman redeemer would act on behalf of that relative. He'd put, his, put the needs of the family first. The Hebrew word for that is goel. Now, there's another word that's used for redemption in the Old Testament, and that is padar. But the verb padar describes a commercial redemption. The uh, illustration that we often use is a little boy who makes a little boat, he loses it, then he sees it in a shop, and so he pays money to buy it back. Well, that illustration is only partly true. It's only partly correct because that's a redemption in a commercial context. But the word that's used here in Isaiah 43 to describe God's redemption is the whole idea of a kinsman redeemer. That is, he's the person who acts on behalf of another member of the family who's been wronged or cheated or gone into slavery, who's in a tight spot. And the kinsman redeemer is like a Boaz, uh, someone who steps into the breach and at great cost to themselves delivers or redeems a relative. Uh, who is in trouble. Now, this family word for redemption is used 40 times in the Old Testament, especially of God's redemption. So there are two words for redemption in the Old Testament, one that's commercial. But the word that's used here, fear not, for I have redeemed you, is a word from the family context, a kinsman redeemer. And it's used to describe God's personal intervention for those he loves, for those who belong to him. And that he has acted personally on their behalf because they are his. And he's paid an enormous cost for them. Notice what else God has done. Verse 1. He who created you, Jacob. He who formed you, Israel. Now when God says, I created you, Israel, he means I called you. I made you my people. But the word that's used here, he who created you, is the word that's used way back in Genesis 1 three times in one verse, to describe God's original creation of mankind. So this is a very special way to describe God's calling of Israel and leading them to himself. He's formed and created them and made them his own. This is hard for us to understand, so I'll give you another example. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 in the New Testament, Paul says that anyone in Christ is a new creation, right? A new creation. The language of creation is used to describe us being called by Jesus and made his own. If you and I are in Christ, we're a new creation. It's just like John 3, a person coming into relationship with the living God is described as born again. Now these kinds of expressions roll off of our our tongues too easily and we forget the wonder of them. We're a new creation. We've been born again, born from above. The language of new birth and an even more incredible new creation is something that ought to lead us to wonder and to praise our God. The wonder of a baby being born, as it were. That's what happened to us. We were made his and brought into this whole new realm of the Spirit of God, as again Simon so well illustrated. 
Now, this passage tells us that God created and formed Israel. And then at the end of verse 1, this idea is developed. I have called you by name, God says, and you are mine. These words are so beautiful. He's called Israel by name and they belong to him. And they may be stuck in crummy Babylon, but they belong to God. They are his special possession. And likewise, we are called by our name. And he has brought us into his family. He's redeemed us, created us and formed us as his own. Thirdly, how will he act for his people? If verse 1 tells us what he's done in the past, when he drew the nation Israel to himself and redeemed them and called them by name and created them, then verse 2 tells us what he will do in this new exodus, this new event. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. This describes a phenomenal deliverance from Babylon. It's saying that absolutely nothing will be able to stop this deliverance. God's chosen people, Israel, will be invulnerable as a result of God's intervention. They'll be able to pass through water and fire. Now, previously in Isaiah chapter 40, we saw that God would do a mass, massive earth-moving things like you know, flattening mountains and, and raising up valleys and making the way smooth for Israel to come back to Palestine. Well, here they're going to pass through fire and water, but God will protect them. Uh, nothing will be able to stop them. Uh, everything that is in the way will be pushed aside. They'll be invulnerable as a result of his intervention. In other words, the references to water and fire indicate that there's no obstacle on their journey that that will defeat them. Uh, God will defeat everything to get them back to their homeland. No force of nature, no hostile element will be able to stop them or do them any harm as they travel. Now, water and fire are classic dangers, to say the least. In Psalm 66, verse 12, it says, We went through fire and water, but you brought us to the place of abundance. That psalm is referring back to the exodus from Egypt. Despite the fire and water, God brought them to the promised land. And now in Isaiah 43, verse 2, God says similar things. The fire and water will not prevent you, will not hinder you. I will bring you back. In other words, whatever the obstacles there uh, there is to the salvation that God has planned for them, those obstacles are irrelevant. They will not stand in the way. In other words, God is saying that in any distress, he will protect them. And he's saying to us, in any and every distress, he will protect us. He will bring us home. Historically, we know that they did go back to the promised land. They did leave Babylon with the help of Cyrus, the Persian emperor, who God raised up. And we know they did arrive back in Palestine. But these words are uttered at a time before that event took place. You and I have the privilege of hindsight. (laughs) We're able to look back in history and say, yes, God did what he said. But what else will he do? 
How else will he act for his people? Verses 5 and 6. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not withhold them. Bring your, my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now the one who will redeem Israel is Lord of all and he commands the four quarters of the earth. He tells the countries where his people are scattered to, to let the Israelites come out. They are to release them. In other words, in glorious language, Isaiah indicates that the distances don't matter. God will bring back his people, his sons from afar, his daughters from the ends of the earth. Doesn't matter how far away they are, he will bring them back. And whether those nations control the Israelites or not is irrelevant. These nations answer to God. The north is to give them up. The south will not withhold his people anymore, nor the east or the west. So precious are his people in his sight. And so concerned is he to effect this powerful deliverance that the political machinations happening in all of those countries are irrelevant. God intends to bring his people home. And this is a word that's fulfilled in the various people scattered throughout Babylon and other places coming back to the land of Palestine. Furthermore, not only is he the one who is all powerful, who will act in this way, notice the cost that he's prepared to pay. Verses 3 and 4, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I will give Egypt for your ransom. Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honoured in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Now, what does this mean? It's a rich image that we can't push too far. It's poetic. It means that the Lord himself, and, and this is expressed in very graphic language, the Lord himself will pay any price for his people to return any price to get his people out of bondage or slavery. He's willing to sell off Egypt just like that for the sake of his people. And you and I already have clear evidence in the New Testament of how precious we are in his sight because we're told that the price God was prepared to pay for the ultimate redemption that Isaiah is looking forward to using this image, the ultimate price was the death of the Son of God, his blood shed on the cross. Just think, God selling off Egypt at the drop of a hat for the sake of Israel. I tell you, if you'd been in a marketplace in the land of Babylon, bargaining for the people of Israel, you would not have parted with the land of Egypt. <laughs> if you owned Egypt, uh, you certainly wouldn't have handed over the Nile River, uh, let alone the rest of Egypt, for the sake of this people. But what does God say here? He says he's willing to pay any price, even Egypt, the whole of Egypt, not only Egypt, Cush and Seba, to the south of Egypt. God will gladly give anything as the ransom price in exchange for Israel, however great these nations are and these nations were far more important than Israel ever was however great they may have been God is prepared to give such a high price to exchange them for Israel 
So precious is Israel in his eyes that no price is too great. But in a sense, the graphic language is simply pointing forward to what we know well. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told with reference to the redemption that was to come. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. The price of our redemption was greater than Egypt and Cush and Seba or whatever else. God would gladly give over even his own son to die in exchange for the life of Israel. So precious had she become to him that he was willing to give anything for this tiny, miserable, insignificant band of men and women uprooted and languishing in a foreign country. They are his people, called by his name. They belong to him and he will do anything for them. They are dear and precious in his sight and the Lord who has control over all the powers and authorities, the Lord who runs the whole of history and all creation. In this poetic imagery used here is willing to give even Egypt, even Egypt for the sake of his people Israel. And according to the New Testament, you and I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Well, Acts 20 verse 28 puts it, the church which God so loved that he bought us with his own blood. That means that you and I are extremely precious to him. I don't know what language to use to get this point across, but we have been chosen in the beloved God's son, Jesus Christ. The Lord of history has stooped down and acted on our behalf. He who was in Christ has come and done the ultimate thing of dying a death on our behalf. Such is his truly incredible love. Think of the scale of the wealth of Egypt. Their armies, their advanced military technology, their luxury items that were second to none, their gold and silver formed into fabulous works of art, their vast stone obelisks, their monumental statues, their gigantic temples, their massive pyramids, their sophisticated bureaucracy, their huge literacy. It's against that context of the excessive wealth of Egypt that we need to realise God is willing to pay an enormous price for this tiny, miserable, insignificant group of people. And as we read on in Isaiah, that price is the suffering of the Messiah, his own son. And what does he say in verse 2? He tells them that whatever the obstacles are, whatever they are, he will get them through it. He will bring them back. Fire, water are irrelevant. They will not stop his people. And no price is too great for the ransoming of his people. So the last and final question, why does he act in this way? It can't be because of Israel's righteousness. They had none. It can't be because of her greatness in the eyes of the world. The prophet simply says in verse 4 that they're precious and honoured in his sight and he loves them. And even 
that still doesn't quite tell us why he acts in this way. Why are they precious and honoured in his sight? Why does he love them? Or to put it another way, why does he act in love towards them? Verse 7 gives us the answer. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That second clause in verse 7, for my glory, is the key. God's saving action is ultimately for his own glory. He loves Israel very, very much. He loves his own people in Jesus, the beloved, very, very much. You and I, he loves very much indeed. And he loves us for the sake of his glory. That is, that it might reverberate to his praise. If he, the living God, could do such things as save this rebel, rebel people, then he must be truly wonderful and his name must really be great. And as we read in the New Testament about God creating us, calling us by name, making us his own, we see that God has done this for the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Notice to the praise of his glorious grace that he has freely lavished on us in the son he loves and that phrase is used twice more in that passage in Ephesians. Why has God done this? He's done this for Israel, his chosen people, because they're precious, because they're honoured, because he loves them. Why does he love them? He loves them because he loves them. But why does he act in this way? He does it for his own glory. And the fact that he has set his love upon you and I in Jesus, the fact that he's the same covenant God and having acted in, in that first exodus on behalf of Israel, having acted in this Babylonian exodus culminating now in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where that exodus was full, fully complete through the giving of God's son. Having done that, um, why did he do it? Because he loves us. Why does he love us? For his own glory. He loves us in his son, Jesus Christ, in a way that is utterly incredible because of his glory. And the things that are said with reference to God's redemption of his people in Isaiah 43 are the same that is said about us in the New Testament. And so the language here in Isaiah 43 goes beyond the redemption of Israel from Babylon and is taken up to talk about what Jesus would ultimately do for Israel and for the world. And the themes that are taken up in the New Testament show us that we too are his precious people. And so Isaiah 43, 1-7 is an oracle of salvation. How is God described? Um, he's the Lord. He's the covenant-keeping God. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's our Saviour. He's our Redeemer. Um, what has he already done for his people? He's redeemed them. He's made them his own. He's created and formed them. He's called them by name. And they are his. 
And what will he do? He'll make sure that he brings them home from Babylon at no, and no cost is too great for that and no obstacle too large. They will come home and he will overcome everything that stands in his way. And he has overcome everything that stand, stood in our way through the death of his son. He paid the ultimate cost and price to save us. Why does he act in this way? Fourthly, he acts in this way because his people are honoured and precious in his sight and he loves them. And so I suggest that if this word from God has struck you in the heart this morning, the way that we would show our response to him is by praising him and by thanking him because he's done this thing, this incredible thing uh, for his own glory, that we would praise him and honour him and give glory to him. Is it okay if we sing the song and then we'll do the prayer? Yeah.